This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt, and today, to kick off the new year, we're talking to longtime progressive organizer Max Berger about two really big questions for climate. How do you build an effective movement, and what do we do about the unraveling of democracy in America? I wanted to talk to Berger in particular about these questions because he's been involved with some of the most effective social movements in recent history, the Sunrise Movement and Occupy Wall Street. And he's also worked in politics for a wide range of folks, including Howard Dean, Cori Bush, and Elizabeth Warren. Today, Berger works with More Perfect Union, an advocacy group that helps working people be seen and heard in media coverage. We spoke back in November 2021 for a wrap-up episode of Seen on Radio's Climate Season focused on what needs to be done now to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of the climate crisis. I'll link to that episode in the show notes. It's well worth a listen. But I also wanted to bring folks this longer conversation because I think it's just so relevant to the task at hand as we start a new year. Hope you enjoy the conversation. It's coming up right after this quick break. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thank you. 
So I, I was hoping maybe you could start with just a little bit of your own personal background. I know you've been an organizer in progressive spaces for a really long time. Thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, so I have been doing progressive and left politics for what, what now turns out to be quite a long time. I first started when I was in high school actually doing organizing against the war in Iraq. And I started a little group called Freedom Not Empire, which I'm still very proud of, of the branding. And it was actually a pretty formative experience for me because I grew up in a small town in central Massachusetts that was pretty evenly split politically and about as normal as could be. And it really helped me, I think, understand how to try to take what, what could be considered radical ideas and try to make them very approachable and mainstream, which I think I've tried to do in everything that I've subsequently done. So after that, I, I was actually at an anti-war protest and somebody gave me a, a fly, this flyer for Howard Dean's presidential campaign. And I thought to myself, okay, that's a plausible that's a plausible theory of change that if that guy won, we could actually end the war. And so I went and I worked for his campaign as an intern in, in Burlington. And so that kind of set up the two main threads of my career, I guess, is sort of social movement stuff uh, more in the streets and kind of left of the Democratic Party and trying to bring some of those same values and um, ideas into mainstream politics. I sometimes joke I've I've worked for every Tea Party of the Left organization that has ever existed, even like putting like all these deep cuts that like no one's ever really heard of before. But, you know, so I worked for Rebuild the Dream, which was a move on spinoff that was supposed to kind of be the counterweight to the Tea Party that was started by Van Jones. I worked for the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, which is one of the first organizations that claimed to be doing uh, what a lot of the groups on the right do around elections. And then eventually most I tried to start one myself in 2015, 2016 with a bunch of people who have since gone on to do a lot of really cool and interesting things. And then that group, which was called All of Us, we ended up merging with Justice Democrat. So I was around when Justice Democrats was first kind of getting started and I had a chance to meet some of the folks there and work with Corey, Corey Bush in 2018. And so, yeah, it was, was early to that organization. And then on the social movement side, and I could tell this chronologically, but I sort of, the story is kind of bouncing back and forth between these two kind of bodies of work. Yeah, uh, no, that's great. On the social movement side, so while I was at Rebuild the Dream, they were like, can you go help start a social movement against austerity? This was in like 2010, after the Tea Party took over. Uh, they were like, can you start a youth movement against austerity? And I was, I remember thinking to myself, I know, I don't, I don't know how to do that. That is really hard, but I agree that that's needed. And that was my job when Occupy Wall Street broke out and I was living in New York at the time. And I went down the first week and I remember thinking to myself, okay, like here, these guys did it. I'm just going to jump on this thing. So I threw down pretty hard with Occupy. And I think I was one of the first kind of NGO connected folks who have been working in politics. So I ended up helping, I think, bring some of those types into the movement and planning some of the big mobilizations that we did, the big days of mobilization. And after Occupy, you know, I, my mind was kind of blown because I, I very clearly saw both how this random ragtag group of folks had started this global movement that was so bigger and more powerful than anything that the NGOs that I had worked for had ever been able to come up with. But also 
as anybody who was part of Occupy Wall Street could tell you, it was an absolute shit show, disaster, shambles in its own right. And so I spent some time thinking about what it would take to create a social movement that had more structure and uh, strategy and had a chance to actually win the things that I was fighting for. And through some of the things I was exploring at the time, I ended up getting connected with Carlos Saavedra and Paul, who were students of Ivan Marovic, who was one of the lead organizers of the Serbian revolution in that, that overthrew Slobodan Milosevic. And Paul and Carlos are, you know, Americans who had a lot of movement experience and were studying Yvonne's ideas about movement building. And I sort of agitated them and together the three of us ended up starting with a lot of other folks, an organization called the Momentum Training Organization that <clears throat> has a theory of organizing or, or, or teaches some practices around organizing that help folks think through how to have more structure and strategy so that you can have a highly autonomous movement where people can operate without central command or organization while at the same time having clarity around what the goals are and how to achieve those things together. And the Momentum organization ended up training a lot of people. After we started Momentum, the war in Gaza broke out. So I, I kind of took the ideas that we had been starting to cook in, in Momentum and applied that to the, the sort of nascent Jewish left where I helped start, if not now, which is a Jewish American movement against the occupation in Palestine and learned a lot about how different it is to apply a theory than it is to come up with one, but very, <laughs> very proud of the young people who created that, who really led that movement. And then I think when we were doing all of us, which I referred to previously, it's a very small group of people at that time who were taking this momentum stuff seriously. Uh, a lot of the people who I was personally most invested in were these kids who ran the Divestment Student Network, which, you know, I thought was the coolest climate organizing happening at the time. And I remember Varsh came to me in 2016, 2017, and was like, hey, we want to do, we want to front load, we want to plan a movement coming out of DSN. And we were hoping that like the folks from If Not Now could train us on how to do that really absolutely like let us know what we can do we'll do anything to help you guys and that movement became sunrise and so i feel i, I sometimes joke like <clears throat> with the sunrise kids that i'm like the the uncle that's like prouder of the movement than like even the parents or like the kids themselves like nope i will not hear you talk badly about yourself okay i don't want to hear it I, I worked on the warren campaign in 2020 doing progressive outreach and after that, I, I helped start with Faz Shakir, who was the campaign manager for Bernie's campaign. I helped start um, an organization called More Perfect Union, which is a media advocacy organization that builds power for working people. And that's where I work now as the editorial director. Can I have you define front-loading also for, for people that don't know that term? Yeah, front-loading, it's, it's this term of art that we came up with in Momentum. It essentially just means planning. But it, it specifically means planning for a movement that you um, hope will decentralize. So if you look at movements like Occupy and Black Lives Matter that broke out spontaneously or somewhat spontaneously, you know, they may have a, a, a group that really helped kick them off and get them started, but it basically went viral without a plan to operate at scale. And so what ends up happening in my experience is the, those kinds of move decohere very 
rapidly because there's not really, especially when you're talking about the actual institution of the movement, there's very little holding it together because it wasn't really planning to get as big as it got. And so basically front loading is just a process by which you spend time thinking about what do we do if this gets huge, <laughs> right? And so as people are entering into the movement, you can arm them with the knowledge and the, and the frameworks that they need to operate as part of it, even if it gets really big. And I think that's something that has served Sunrise really well in that they they had a pretty, not that you don't have to answer a million different questions. And it, it, it's not like this just kind of like unfolding protein that just then, you know, collapses into the shape that it needs to be. But it certainly allows you to it guides your decision-making once the, the movement is unfolding in a way that I think it can be really helpful both for leaders and for even new people coming in the front door to understand, okay, if I sign up for the movement, this is what I'm signing up for. This is why they believe what they believe. This is what we're fighting for. This is how we're going to fight for it. And so it allows you to then take leadership in your local community and be make decisions that make sense for your local context while still being part of something much um much larger and more coherent. The um, the thing that has always struck me about Sunrise too is that that it does have this this way of of I don't know just of flattening hierarchy in a way like there are leaders and there are people who take on that mantle like like Varshni and and whatnot but but then that have this ability to kind of step back and just be part of the movement again and I wonder if that's a planned thing like if that's something that you I don't know that oh. that gets sort of set up up top <laughs> that's sort of the that's always the goal mm -hmm. uh, I think there it's not I mean we could spend the whole hour just on the kind of organizational theory stuff some I'm this is less my strong suit when it comes to different areas of the movement but you know the folks who helped come up with these ideas spent a lot of time studying different organizational structures, reading about, honestly, one of the biggest inspirations is the evangelical church and the way that they can create these kind of small groups that really foster leadership and create tiers of engagement for people to move up that give people a ton of agency and autonomy, but within, within a structure so that as you're going about your journey that you are you're you're part of something bigger and it's it's kind of laid out so the goal is not necessarily to completely do away with hierarchies it's not a kind of anarchist like flattening uh, of all difference but to allow for the hierarchies to emerge in ways that serve the movement and that allow people still to have a lot of choice and freedom in in kind of like how they want to participate and what that means and i think especially that then helps create a culture in which there's a lot of accountability and the people at the top are, are understanding their role as kind of servant leaders in fostering, fostering a movement that people actually want to be a part of and that feels good to be a part of. And I think that's one of Sunrise's many great successes is in taking the culture aspect of that really seriously and wanting to invite people in and to make it feel friendly. And the left, I think, doesn't always do that. And, and, and I think more importantly, doesn't even really try a lot of the time. And I think Sunrise has the folks who, who helped start it have been a part of the left enough to know that 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 doesn't work, right? Like if you don't create a welcoming space for people that folks actually want to be a part of, then they'll go home because there's a million other things that they could do. And this stuff is really hard. I think that they, they took that seriously in a way that very, very few other groups do and have. And I think it's a, 
significant part of their success. I have been hearing a lot of people recently talking about systems change, but talking about it in this way of like making tweaks to the existing system rather than sort of a a more like an actual change of the system (laughs) or or a replacement of the current system. And I've seen you at least tweeting a few things recently that, that like the, it might not be possible to just improve the the system that we have, that there might actually be a need for what some would call revolution. And I'd love to just, I don't know, hear you expand on that. Yeah, it's a great question. I'll be honest that my answer here is going to be very preliminary. I think I'm in the process of uh, trying to figure out what it would look like to engage with these questions more seriously, as mm-hmm. is for the broader momentum community. And I would not claim I'd say in the same way that like 18 months out, Sunrise was kind of like, yeah, we like want to start a new movement that's not just about ending the fossil fuel industry, but that has a sort of positive vision of what we're trying to fight for. And we want to front load it and we want it to be big and we want it to be political and not just a social movement, but we don't really know what it is yet. That I'm sort of in that kind of a place with this conversation. So with that caveat that I'm I'm still early and trying to figure out how to talk about and think about this stuff, I would say, yeah. I think, well, first let's like define the problem, right? Because I think my intuition, hypothesis, sense of where this is going is that essentially it's not really so much a question of should we keep the current system that we have or should we throw it aside and get a totally new system. Unfortunately, I think this decision has somewhat already been made for us and that I don't think that this current system can, will, can, can sustain itself through the course of the decade. Because what's fundamentally happening here is the, the United States is a country. We like to think of ourselves and historically have, you know, really been very different from a lot of other countries and sort of the preeminent, whatever, American exceptionalism. But if you just were to step back and look at the U.S. as a country, it would be very clear the current constitutional arrangement is not long for this world. You have a significant subset of the population, particularly the white population, although not only, that is really terrified about the transition away from a white majority population to a multiracial majority. And that's happening in the context of world historic inequality, right? So you you really do have the conditions for ethno-nationalist authoritarian politics, right? Like call it fascist, call it ethno-nationalist authoritarian, call it white supremacist, a politics in which there is a significant number of people that are willing to use violence and, and, and do not really subscribe to the beliefs that are required of participating in a democracy because they're afraid of losing power within that democracy to other ethnic groups. That's the kind of beginning of my analysis here. And if if you take that as a kind of skeleton key for what's going on, you're a lot becomes more clear in that that group of people, that kind of white supremacist plurality is not big enough to govern the country, but it is big enough to take over the Republican Party, as Trump showed, and through their control of the Republican Party, are able to take control of state and federal governments because we have a very anti-democratic political system, because our political system is the result of a compromise with 
slaveholders and so vastly over represents small rural states that white people have more power and so that white supremacist plurality can take over the federal government state governments with a minority of votes and because of other aspects of our anti-democratic political system, the Senate, as we're seeing now, the Electoral College, as we we are kind of threatened with every four years, that there's going to be another instance in which the, the, the winner of the popular vote does not become president. And that has happened recently a number of times. And, and the two-party system, which allows for that, let's say, 25 to 40% of the population to, to govern, we are not, we're not going to see the multiracial majority have an opportunity to turn its will into law in the next 10 to 15 years. And I think the amount of tension that that will generate will break the political system. I don't think that I don't think that the the amount of 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 friction that will be created in the the in the in the popular will being stymied in that way particularly when the people in power are taking active steps to uh, move us away from competitive elections and limit people's rights i i cannot imagine a situation in which the multiracial majority takes that lying down and i also don't think that the white nationalist plurality is is going to become less vociferous in their opposition to multiracial democracy. So, and, and if you were to talk about this with a comparative political scientist, they would tell you if you have this kind of demographic transition happening, the worst case scenario, our political system is basically designed as poorly as possible to manage that kind of a demographic transition because the two party system collapses all divisions in society into a zero-sum, all-or-nothing, competitive, existential conflict. And when that gets racialized or ethnicized, it, it can become dangerous very quickly. We're as polarized as any time since before the Civil War. And in addition, with the, with the separately elected presidency and a bicameral system, we have what, cam what uh, political scientists refer to as a profusion of veto points, right? So it's very, very difficult for bills to become law, uh, as we see with anything. But I, the example I always use is is gun control. And after name a massacre, people always ask if this stuff is eighty five percent approval rating, why can't it pass? Uh, and the truth of the matter is that very little can pass. Very little, very few laws make it through the our system. And the, the, there's a stat that I think does not bode well. I tweeted this the other day and people thought I was saying not in jest, but you know, the, there's a, there's a stat that the United States is the only system that has a separately elected executive branch that has not at some point collapsed into dictator because in presidential systems, systems with a separate, a separately elected executive, what happens is there's a conflict between the president and the Congress. And there's some external crisis that requires action and the Congress is incapable of or unwilling to respond. And then the executive takes the authority to do so without the approval of the legislature. And once that is broken, it's very hard to take back. And I think some version of that is more or less inevitable in the next five years. So I, 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 
the way I say it is like, look, we're going to get a new political system. The question is, does it happen before authoritarian authoritarianism and civil war or after? And I would love for it to be before. <laughs> As an American, I would love to not have to experience those things, but I don't, I don't think we're going to. So I think we're looking more at a post-dictatorship, post-conflict situation and, and less at like, how do we organize a political revolution before? But I, I, it's not so neat and tidy as that, right? Like I, I it's, there, there's probably a little bit more overlap in those scenarios than I'm giving credit for. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I, I feel like people are, are seem to be actually increasingly calling for Biden to do that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to just just use yeah. executive power to do X, Y, Z. And I think out of this frustration with the fact that votes are being suppressed and then even when, you know, you do kind of elect someone that you think is going to pass different policy, not that, I mean, I'm under no, I, I, I I was not like, I, I was not excited to vote for, but like that it's, it's difficult to, to get any kind of significant change passed. Right. Yeah. And then that there's this sense of, oh, well, who knows if this will stick because in three years time, someone else will come in and change it back. I, I think people are, yeah, I just, I just, I, I, yeah, I don't really see how, that continues without some kind of boiling point and then restructuring of some kind. Yeah. It's not, it's not, we don't live in a democracy. Like yeah. the, the, the thing, the thing about the kind of common liberal story around this that I get incredibly frustrated with is that, and, and this gets to sort of where I'd like the conversation to go and where I'm you know only beginning to try to figure out how to bring it there, but you know, where I think it needs to go is we cannot simply make this about defending the existing constitutional order because it's precisely the existing constitutional order that was failing that led us to this point. Trump is not aberrant in that respect. He is actually, there's a way in which you could argue he is, he is a defender of the underlying structures of the, of the constitution, right? They serve him. So despite his willingness to get rid of the parts of the constitution that don't benefit him, He's he doesn't want to change the underlying political arrangements because they're good for Republicans. So I, I, I and <laughs> like you said, Amy, like in most other countries, the way that democracy works and the way it's supposed to work is you vote for a new government. The government passes the laws based on what they said they were going to do in the election. Then voters get to decide, did that work for us? And depending on whether it did or it didn't, they get rid of the people in power or they give them more opportunities to do other things that they promise that they're going to do. In our system, none of it works like that. People, when you elect a new government, no matter what they ran on, they probably can't actually do the thing that they said that they were going to do. And it's not because they weren't super committed to it or that they don't really believe in it or whatever. It's because literally our institutions make it impossible for them to do that. And then people get mad because stuff isn't happening, because things are going bad. And our system makes it damn near impossible to figure out whose fault that is, right? Whose fault is it that Build Back Better got watered down? I mean, I follow this stuff super closely, about as closely as anybody could. And I get confused sometimes. I can't imagine how working class people who don't follow politics that closely 
and just want to understand want our politics to do more to help people like them why they don't they can't tell who's at fault for these things who they should be angry at who they should reelect it doesn't right. make any fucking sense so the the accountability mechanism is completely broken and to your point about wanting biden to take more to just do more this is this is the trajectory of the past 40 years is the congress is less and less able to pass laws and so what that means of the presidency is it has to just do more, do more through executive action, do more through what existing authorities it already has. And some people talk about that in terms of the imperial presidency. And it is, it is, it is dangerous and it is part of, it is one of the many threads leading us towards authoritarianism, but it's, it, it needs to be seen as a result of the failure of Congress to govern. And Congress's failure is again, not simply the result of kind of people with bad ideas or or insufficient will, but the result of a political system that is this Rube Goldberg device that simply can't sustain itself. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really important here also to give some credence to the founders while also recognizing just what the hell we're talking about here. Like these guys were, it was the first modern Republican democracy in the world. Mm -hmm. um, they had no examples to draw from. And they had a lot of beliefs that now we would think of as aberrant and they didn't have um, anything to compare themselves to. And so I think it, there's a way that we can come down on the constitution and the kind of original political institutions of the country in a way that both recognizes that there were real innovations and real leaps forward for human liberation while not ignoring the reality that many of these people were slaveholders and that in a very practical sense that the institutions that they created were the result of compromises with the power of slaveholders and that those compromises still live with us today that we we can kind of not throw out the baby with the bathwater like constitutional democracy is still worth fighting for and many of the ideals that we consider to be you know american ideals are worth fighting for but I would argue that the, the the spirit of the founders would augur in favor of us creating a new constitution today in the same way that they did and not paying fealty to the work of long dead men who mm -hmm. don't understand the world that we live in today so I think we can talk more about this some other time but I think that trying to imagine what it would look like to create a new constitution is not as impossible as people think again because the united states is a country and other countries have constitutions that are significantly better than the united states and that are significantly more flexible like other countries change and update their constitutions all the time and it like never happens here yeah no right not only not only i think that's so key we not only do we have a kind of uniquely badly designed political system but we also have one of if not the hardest constitution to change yeah. so it's this it's like imagine if you had the oldest like the literally the first indoor plumbing system that was ever created in the world and you could never change it you'd be like well this house is pretty nice but holy shit it's always flooding and leaking and maybe it's just time for a new plumbing system <laughs>
That's it for this time. Thanks as always for joining us. We'll be back next week with another bonus episode and back with part two of our season on the gas industry just as soon as we can wrap it up. Hopefully by the end of this month, but it might be a little bit later, just depending on, you know, this never ending pandemic. I want to give a shout out to our latest Patreon supporters, Tana Morgan, Katie, Will Gollahue, Maureen DeCom, Anne Gerhardt, Le Abracadabra, Daniel Stubbs, Sarah Ventry, Ravi Mickelson, Tam Vu, Zane Selvins, Ryder Bergrind, Philip Bell, Courtney McNaught, and Rebecca Schwartz. That support and the support of our many other patrons is absolutely critical to the continuation of this podcast. If you would like to support our work and get access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, and exclusive merch while doing so, please check out patreon.com slash drilled. Drilled is an original production of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. Music this week is by Martin Wissenberg. The show is written, reported, and produced by me, Amy Westervelt. Our producer is Jules Bradley, audio engineering by Peter Duff. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton of the First Amendment Project. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.